heard or you've seen it on talkback this week. Yeah, Mike's example was he picked Pinky Stephen. Yeah, his uncle Stephen. Um, but for me, like years ago, I used to go to a youth club as well, a youth area, and you know, teenage years. And there was a preacher who he was usually saying for every single month. And this preacher would preach sort of two or three times a year. And he'd get the same story every time he stood up to preach. And it was quite a relevant story for him because he was a preacher who was known for going on a bit. You know, he's the sort of guy that when he went to a prayer meeting, he would have a half an hour prayer meeting and he would stand up and pray for 20 to 25 minutes of that half an hour. Um, and when he preached to the adults in particular, he was the sort of man who, given the opportunity, he would start preaching at 6 o'clock in the evening. And, you know, if no one stopped him, he could quite happily carry on preaching until 6 o'clock the next morning. Um, and he would, when he would come to preach at these youth rallies, he would always tell the story of another preacher, not him, definitely not him, um, who, whenever he got up to preach, his wife would give him a little slip of paper that had this written on it. And everyone would think, oh, that's sweet, his wife giving him a bit of encouragement to, um, before he goes up to preach. And of course, it didn't mean, you know, encouragement. It's just a few bits of speaking. Um, and he would always say that to us um, before he preached. Um, because as youth, you know, we were interested in getting in, singing some songs, and then hanging out with our mates at the end of the, the, the meeting. So he would always reassure us that he wasn't going to do one of these things long preaches and that it would be sort of hard. Um, but for me this morning, I'll give no such assurances. Um, it's painful, you know, it's great. So, um, so yeah, so we're going to continue looking at um, the foundation teachings. And James said we're going to talk about um, repentance. There we go. I do know what you're talking about. Repentance and baptism. Um, and we're going to start where life truly begins for us, which is salvation. Um, it's a starting point of our relationship with God Almighty, a relationship that we enter in through God's Son, Jesus, and is filled by His Holy Spirit. Um, if we go to Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 6, um, hopefully the words will be passages will be on the um, screen behind me. And it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived, we once all, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I've just realized I've been reading in the English Standard Version. I imagine Mark will put up in the NIV, have you? Yeah. The message doesn't change, the words are almost the same. And we often refer to salvation as being born again. It comes about from a conviction by the Holy Spirit. That moment when you have a realization that there is a greater entity 
in this world more than just flesh and blood. The realization that we're not a mistake, we're not an accident, that humans are here by design. We were created. And we were created to have a relationship with our Creator. And that, and with that comes the realization that there is something broken in our relationship with our Creator. How can we as mere creation stand before a being so powerful that he could create an entire universe just by speaking? And when it reveals through Jesus what a relationship with God Almighty should look like. And we say to Jesus, Will you be Lord of our lives? You live the life that was perfect and died the death that was meant for us. And then from that place, we can stand before God and say sorry. You're sorry for not believing you were real, Lord. You're sorry for not seeking you out. And you're sorry for being selfish and thinking that we knew how to live our lives best. You're sorry that our sin was so great and our relationship with you was so broken that you had to send your son down to earth to pay a price that we couldn't. But living it, having lived the perfect life, he had to suffer your wrath, your wrath, and the pain of you turning away from him. A punishment that was meant for us. And then we say, God, please, please please forgive us. Please forgive us for our disobedience. Could you forgive us for our unbelief? Can you forgive us for our selfishness? You know what? That's what yes. Yes. I forgive you. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. God, in His faithfulness, forgives us, cleanses us, and makes us new creations. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. At that moment of salvation, or being born again, we receive illumination where our eyes are open to see and understand God's truth. Something unbelievable is blinded to us. See, for instance, for verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When we are born again, we receive the very life of God, the Holy Spirit inside us. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are told that we are simultaneously sealed with the Holy Spirit, like a deposit on the house, which we will one day own outright. We are told Jesus gives us gives the Spirit like living water to all who believe. And by Jesus' Spirit, we are purified, and by His Spirit, we have eternal life. Life to the full. But this salvation moment is only the beginning. It's our rebirthday, if you have Now, when I was in Sunday school, many, many, many years ago, before I went to youth grade, um, we used to sing happy birthday, obviously, when it was someone's birthday. Um, but the version that we used to sing used to have a second verse. 
already am the sort of thing. So it went like this. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Say Jesus as a savior. And then you'll have to Three birthdays. Thank you. Now our salvation is complete. You know, we can't be a little bit saved. We can't lose our salvation, and there aren't different levels of salvation. The one time deal, signed, sealed, and saved. It's signed by his blood, sealed by his spirit, and saved by his soul. But this is the only start of our journey. We ultimately still have our part to play. In Matthew 3, we meet an interesting character with an important message. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, for me, there is something about that word repent, and it needs to be expressed in a different way. Um, I think for sure, the English, you can't quite get it. You know, there's a bit of growl to the, to the word that needs to be done here. Um, you, kind of, you can imagine like a, a fiery Welsh preacher or a Northern Irish preacher or a Scotsman, you know, really going for that word repent. It's something that often gives it a bit more gravitas. But, um, but it needs to be delivered in the right way. It's not just a command, but it's also a plea to us. Um, and it's, it's easy to imagine that, that preacher, you know, leaning over the lectern, looking out at everyone, but at the same time looking just at you. You know, leaning over, looking out, with a fire in their eyes. Grow, it's grown, it's grown, and emerges from repentance. And there's a compassion in that. Because it's urgent. It's, it's, we, we, need to be, we need to repent to avoid this destruction. The word repentance does actually have a simple meaning, but it has a life changing application. It simply means turn around. If I was walking this way, over here, and oh look, there's a bucket in the way. I'm going to trip over this bucket. Stop! Repent! I'm saved from tripping over a bucket. I've repented from the bucket. You just don't put that bucket in. But we can't repent by staying on the same course. It's more than just saying sorry. If we stay sorry and then carry on in the same way, nothing has changed. We'd be like children. You know, there are many times when my son decides to cry on me, and he gets a bit boisterous, and he might dig his elbow in, but don't stick me with an elbow dug into, and it will hurt. And I say, God, please stop. And they'll be like, okay, sorry. And then carry on doing exactly what he's done before. And that boy may not be aware of it, but he's on his way to the destruction. If he carries on in the same way. But he's not repentant. He's just saying sorry because that's the thing to do. It has to be accompanied by a change in attitude or action. In our lives, if we're repenting from being selfish, then we need to act by putting the other first. If we're repenting for not being obedient to God's word, then we need to start being obedient to God's word. But repentance always means turning away from something that is ultimately going to do harm. 
and towards something that is going to benefit us. We'll have a look at some examples of repentance now. So we're going to look at the Jonah, which itself has more than one act of repentance in the book. Um, and it says this, Jonah 1 verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarsus. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarsus. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go to Tarsus, away from the presence of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Sorry, we're moving on to Jonah chapter 3 now. Saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh is an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began going to the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes, and issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, nor herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mortally to God. Let Everyone turn from his evil way. And from the violence that is in his hands, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fear to anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, God relented, and the disaster that he had said would do to them, he did not do. So here we have two examples of repentance that I find start with. Firstly, we have Jonah. He was given a command by God, and immediately he ran off in a different direction. Now that wasn't the repentance. His disobedience brought pain and suffering to himself and to those around him. He nearly caused an entire ship of people to be drowned. He caused financial harm. To the captain of the ship, as they lost a load of money throwing their cargo overboard trying to keep the ship afloat. Um, and then for Jonah personally, he had the cost of buying a ticket to Tarsus, which is anything like a bit of a rail price between the days, it's not really kind of um, Then the indignity of three days of the be- in the belly of a fish and being vomited up onto dry land. But it took all of that to bring him to a point of repentance. So when the Lord does ask him again in chapter 3 to go to Nineveh, he agrees to go. Even if it is a reluctant repentance, he still repented and turned from the force that was leading him to disaster. And his repentance and obedience also led to their repentance and salvation. Now, let's have a look at another familiar story. 
And this time we're going to move to the New Testament. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 24. I'm sure you all have this story. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger son said to his father, Father, give me a share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. And when he spent everything, severe famine hit that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with pods that were contained, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly his best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead. He is now alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now this parable shows us the like, ultimate act of rebellion. We have a son who effectively says to his dad, I can't wait for you, Dad. I want you dead, and I want all your stuff. I don't want to live with you anymore. I want to go and do my own thing. And through this act of rebellion against the father, the son starts a chain of events that could have led to his destruction. Thankfully, the son does repent. He realizes that the life he is now leading is far, far worse than anything that could even the loneliness of his father's servant have to endure. If he continues the way he's going, it means death. But if he turns and goes back to his father, surely that will mean life again. So he makes his way back to his father. He starts working on his feet. My father has sinned before heaven and you. And whilst he is still far off, his father sees him and runs out to meet him. What a picture of a loving father that is. You know, it's not some grumpy old man sitting in an armchair, sulking that his son has rejected him. And waiting for him to come crawling back and begging forgiveness. But instead, we have a father hoping for the lost son to return. One who's looking out and seeing his son returning from the far off and running out to meet him. The son offers up his apologies and asks for forgiveness, and the father's response is to freely forgive and then demand new clothes and a ring for him. And he returns his son to a place of authority within the house and throws a party to celebrate his homecoming. Now, 
we also must remember there were two sons in this story. We have the second son. I did cut the story short before we got to this point, but we have two sons in the story, and the older son, who is unhappy that his brother's returned, thinking it unfair that his brother's being treated so well. Um, after wishing his father's death, he thinks his father's love must be earned through actions, and his wandered. Um, so he thinks his father, his love for his father, must be earned through actions, and so he manages to squander his time with his father. Instead of working on his relationship with his father, he's been working out on the land, effectively becoming no more than a slave himself. Despite never leaving home, it appears he is spiritually mentally in the same place that his younger brother was. Unfortunately, at the end of the day, we don't see if he intends. He goes to be in the party with his father. But God's grace and our salvation can never ever be earned. It's freely given by him, and we should never respond to God's grace by comparing it, comparing how he treats us in relation to how he treats others. It's the same grace for all of us. Yet repentance and humility inflame God's kindness and grace even more. This parable teaches us that recognition of sin, remorse and godly sorrow, and returning to our loving God are three key ingredients for repentance. Repentance is both a one-time action as well as an ongoing process in our lives. When we first repent, we decide to completely follow Jesus and return from our old way of life. However, through our lives, through our lives, if we ever turn away from God's plan, or be disobedient, or just mess up in some way, there's still the chance to repent again and turn back towards God. In Acts 2, Peter says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As part of our repentance towards God, we are called to make a public declaration of our faith. Baptism is a part of that public declaration of our new lives and our decision to follow Jesus. Romans 9, chapter 3, sorry, Romans 6, 3 to 11, tells us, well, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, like his, we will certainly also be reunited with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that our body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lived, he lived to God. In the same way, 
count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, our baptism is a physical demonstration of what happened to us in the Spirit. We have died to sin and been raised up into new life in Christ Jesus. The Greek vowel, the Greek vowel, the Greek verb, a noun, baptizo, baptisma, and baptismos, could be translated to wash, dip, plunge, or purify, depending on the context that they're written. Combining this with the description of Jesus' baptism, where the gospel says he came up out of the water, and the language of coming up out of the grave in Romans 6 all strongly point towards that baptism is a full immersion in water. And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repented and asked him to be Lord of your life, then you believe as a church that you should look to be baptized as soon as possible after making the decision to follow. And today I would encourage you, if there is anyone here that hasn't been baptized, you know, as James said before the meeting, take a moment to talk to James or Mike or Cass, he's not here, but, um, you know, talk to one of the leaders about getting yourself baptized, you know, finding out what it means for you and the Christians. 